Welcome to Studies in the Scriptures with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, a broadcast ministry of Return to the Word and made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome back to Studies in the Scriptures. We left off in chapter 4 of Ruth. We left off with this other kinsman handing over his sandal and therefore giving up his rights to have the opportunity to redeem the land and to redeem Ruth. It would now pass to the next in line, which was Boaz. This was the final legal act that needed to take place for Boaz to be able to redeem Ruth. With this final gesture of the sandal, the rights and responsibilities of redemption concerning Elimelech's estate had now been officially transferred to Boaz. Verse 9 of chapter 4 tells us, And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Milan's from the hand of Naomi. Boaz now turns to the witnesses present and gave his closing speech. Boaz spoke to both the elders of the city and to the people that had stopped to watch what was taking place. Notice the first thing that he tells them in verse 9. You are witnesses this day. See, if any of this ever came into question, if his claim to the land or even to Ruth ever came into question, Boaz had a large group of men that he could pull from as witnesses that he took all the right steps. In verse 9, Boaz raises the issue of the estate. Notice how he refers to it. All that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Milan's. And again, the issue in verse 9 is that Boaz acquired the rights to the estate. It would have not been Naomi's land to sell. And notice something else. This really isn't about Boaz buying the land at this point from someone else. And you don't see the person with the rights to the land listed here. Boaz was acquiring the right to redeem the land at this time. So what does this mean? Well, Boaz after this would still have to go and redeem the land from whomever held the estate. Acquire the right to redeem it first, then actually go redeem it. And then verse 10 tells us, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Milan, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses to this day. With verse 10, the second part of his speech now states that he had acquired the rights to Ruth. Some translations say that he purchased her. It should be acquired the rights. And some of the translations also leave the impression that at this point, Ruth was now his wife, but there's no wedding here. This again is just about the rights. The issue was the right to redeem Ruth through the marriage. Verse 13 is gonna tell us this, that later on after the events at the city gate, Boaz took Ruth to be his wife. Now I'm curious that Boaz referred to the fact that she was from Moab. Perhaps this was needed. It was necessary because of the legal setting. But we get no indication anywhere in this text that Boaz had a problem marrying someone from Moab. And with the rest of verse 10, Boaz gives us the motive for acquiring the rights to marry Ruth, the widow of Milan. It was to raise up the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of this place. You are witnesses this day. 
the estate, the family name, and their representation at the gate, it would continue on. The rest of verse 10 and verse 11 goes back to this idea that they didn't keep the legal records written down and recorded to the extent that we do today. But instead, they kept witnesses in big numbers in case some of the witnesses died off over time. So notice how the people at the gate, including the elders and those that had gathered, responded to Boaz. First, they agreed and reaffirmed what Boaz had said. They were witnesses of the events. Now, notice how important this was. Boaz started his speech in verse 9 by telling the people they were witnesses. He ended his speech in verse 10 by telling them that they were witnesses that day. And then here it is again in verse 11. Verse 11 says, And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. There's another reason for the repetition. There is no actual word in Hebrew for the word yes. Some of our translations put it there. Some of them do translate to Hebrew in certain places to say yes, but they simply did not have a word that carried the exact meaning of yes. So what they would do was repeat what the person had said, indicating their agreement. The words, we are, these are italicized, indicating that they're not actually in the text. After Boaz had told the people in verse 10 that they were witnesses this day, since they had no exact word for yes, the people simply responded in a unified voice, witnesses, indicating their agreement that they were witnesses of these events. According to the legal tradition, they were done. The elders had fulfilled their obligations to witness what had taken place, but they didn't stop there. They continued on to give a statement of blessing upon Boaz. Notice with their first statement, how they refer to Ruth. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house now, this is based on the tradition they had of having the wedding party proceed to the home of the groom after the marriage ceremony, with the groom formally ushering the bride into his house. These witnesses were praying that Yahweh would grant this foreign woman a place among the matriarchs of Israel, along with Rachel and Leah. Think about what they were saying. Genesis 29 teaches us that Rachel and Leah were the daughters of Laban, whom Jacob married. And the sons of Rachel and Leah went on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's another interesting dynamic taking place in Ruth. Bethlehem belonged to the tribe of Judah. Judah was a son of Leah. So you'd expect to see Leah listed first instead of Rachel. Also keep in mind, Leah was the oldest of the two. So this once again points to the idea that you would expect to see Leah listed first. But think of one more thing. It's found in Genesis 35. Listen to Genesis 35, starting in verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Now remember, we've said before that Ephrath is an ancient name for Bethlehem. 
Verse 16 and verse 19 in Genesis make it clear that Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, died and was buried close to Bethlehem. So even though they belonged to the tribe of Judah and were descendants of Leah, we must think that they must have felt a close connection with Rachel because she was buried close by. So heading back to our passage in Ruth, I want you to think about what the people were saying by expressing their prayer that the God of Israel would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. What were they really saying? They were expressing their prayer that Ruth would be as fertile as Rachel and Leah. That just as Rachel and Leah built up the house of Israel, they prayed that the Lord would raise up the house of Boaz through Ruth. And at the end of verse 11, we have the second part of the blessing, and may you prosper in Ephrathah. What we have with this statement is typical Hebrew parallel thought, where the second line builds upon the first with the desire that Boaz be famous in Bethlehem and involves this idea of keeping the family name alive, that a man would live on through his descendants living in the land. So take a look at verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamor bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Here we have the third part of the blessing. This time we turn over to Genesis 38. We're gonna pick up the high points of this passage. And this gets a little graphic as we go through this, but there's a greater point here. Try to think of why this is mentioned in Ruth as we work our way through this text. Genesis 38, starting with verse six. It says, then Judah took a wife of Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. And before I read verse nine, allow me to just say, if you're wondering why things like this are recorded in the word of God, what we're looking at is an honest and accurate account of God's dealings with men. And many times what we see in the word of God is an honest record of the sins of men. Take a look at verse nine. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Notice what happens in verse 11. This is a part of the key to understanding this passage. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So here we have this agreement that Tamar would wait for Judah's son Shelah to become of age. But at the end of verse 14, we learn that Shelah had become full of age. Shelah had grown up and Shelah had not married Tamar as advertised. Well, you probably remember what happened. Tamar covered her face and pretended to be a harlot. Judah had physical relations with her, not knowing that this was his daughter-in-law. Verse 18 informs us she conceived by him. And then we skip down to verse 24 where it says, and it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. 
Notice the hypocritical double standard on the part of Judah. He was ready to have her burned. In verses 25 and 26, Judah is confronted with his sin, but take a look at what happens starting with verse 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zira. Perez literally means breach or pushing through. Think about Perez for a minute. He was the first of two twins, born of prostitution with Tamar and her father-in-law Judah. But yet, Perez would be a part of the messianic line, which we see at the end of chapter four of Ruth and in Matthew chapter one. So let's put all this together and ask the question, Why did the people of the city of Bethlehem bring up the house of Perez in relation to Boaz and Ruth? And the answer is because if you take the time to look at later on in Genesis 46 and verse 12 and Numbers chapter 26, verse 20, the two twins born to Tamar, which was Perez and Zerah, along with Judah's son, Shelah, that had been promised to Tamar, these three became the ancestors of the tribe of Judah. And I believe the reason Perez is mentioned in Ruth 4 is because Perez was the ancestor of Boaz, and Perez was the ancestor of the clan that Boaz came from, living in and around Bethlehem. This is part of the point that we will get to in Ruth chapter 4. At the very end of the book, where we see that starting in verse 18, the genealogy of Perez is traced to Boaz. See, the comparison is that Tamar was a widow, just as Ruth was a widow. Ruth and Tamar were both from a foreign land and both had married into Israel. In both cases, the husbands were older than the wives. And even though the situation with Judah was not exactly God's perfect plan, Tamar did give birth to their ancestors. So the thought in verse 12 is that the people were expressing their prayer that Ruth would give Boaz a son so that Boaz could live on through his descendants just as Judah had lived on through all the descendants of Judah living in the land. Chapter 4 makes it clear that it started out with 10 elders of the city gathered together to witness, but more people gathered around to watch the events unfold. And what struck me as I studied through this was that little did these people know of the great outcome that would happen through Boaz. They simply could not have imagined how God would use this family line to establish a name and a house far greater than that of Perez. God would use the family line of Boaz to bring about the house of King David. Verse 13 moves the story along. Verse 13 and 14 teach, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. Now that Boaz had the right to marry Ruth because the other kinsman redeemer had given up his rights, we see in verse 13 that Ruth and Boaz were married. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. According to their custom, it was a man's responsibility to establish his household. 
This is part of the reason that we see the wording in verse 13 mentioned that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. I think the other part of it was that this was part of their custom with the marriage ritual, that a man would take his wife to his house as part of the marriage ritual. Think about how this changed things for Ruth. At first, she was just seen as a poor woman from Moab, but now she was the wife of Boaz, a man that was well-respected in the land. This is an important statement in verse 13 that the Lord gave her conception. Keep in mind, she was married to Milan for roughly 10 years, and apparently she was unable to conceive. Now we see the witnesses at the gate praying that she would bear children to Boaz, and then we read shortly after this that God gave her conception. See, the point of the text is that this was an unmistakable act of God. God was moving. God was working. With verse 14, remember that some time is passing by. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that somewhere around nine months or so has gone by. The women of Bethlehem heard the news that Ruth had given birth to Obed. So notice what they said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. Don't forget that this was the time of the judges where it could hardly be said that the people by and large were walking with the Lord. This was a great word of praise that these women had. They praised the Lord for his kindness to Naomi. Think back to chapter one. Remind yourself of what Naomi said to the people when she first returned to Bethlehem. Verses 20 and 21 said in chapter one, but she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Naomi in chapter one recognized that God had brought her back home empty, but now at the very least, Naomi was forced in chapter four to be confronted with the truth that God had indeed blessed her. These women confronted Naomi with the truth, with their expression of praise, that it was God that had not left her without a kinsman redeemer. And at the end of verse 14, where they said that his name may be famous in Israel, let me give you two different views of what they meant. Some would see this as an expression by these women for their desire to see the name of God famous in Israel. In this view, the birth of this child is a demonstration of the power of God to his people. But I think it's much more likely that this statement refers to the boy that had been born, with the idea simply being that this boy would live a fruitful life that would keep the family name alive in Israel. And then notice verse 15, what they continue to tell her. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Keep in mind that Naomi had been concerned with finding security for Ruth. Here the women remind Naomi that this birth of this child, he was a restorer of life. In other words, all was not lost. There was still hope. But think about this second statement that he would be a nourisher of your old age. See, even though Naomi was already considered old in their culture, this statement looked even further down the road into the future, reminding Naomi that if she should live so long, a male grandchild had been born, which would ensure her financial security in the future. Then think of this last statement that these women made at the end of verse 15 in a society that was completely dominated by males and reminding ourselves that Naomi had lost a husband and two sons, 
these women point out that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, had demonstrated time and time again her love and her commitment to Naomi. And to put the icing on the cake, Ruth had given birth to a son. This expression in reference to Ruth is better to you than seven sons. See, the Jews had a belief that the ideal family consisted of having seven sons. This points to the character of Ruth and to the strong reputation that she had if she was viewed as better than having seven sons or the ideal family. Naomi took the child. She held the child. And I don't like the word nurse so much in verse 16. I don't really think that's what is taking place. But I think the intended wording here gives us a picture of a loving grandmother holding on to this child with a grateful heart towards the Lord and a loving heart towards this child. Take a look at verse 17. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Kind of unusual that the women neighbors are cited as giving the child a name, but you can almost picture the excitement that they had that a son had been born to carry on the family name. It's also kind of interesting to me how this book ends. Instead of reading any further accounts of Ruth, of Naomi, or even of this child, the Bible records clearly for us that the importance of this was more than just the immediate situation in the days of Ruth. By pointing out to us, Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. See, the book of Ruth, it closes with a genealogy. Keep in mind that genealogies were a short and efficient way of writing history. Here the purpose is to show us the lineage from Perez down to Boaz down to David. And this same genealogy can be found in 1 Chronicles chapter 2. It can also be found in both Luke chapter 3 and in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But here's what I want you to remember when thinking of this genealogy. At the very core, I think that part of the purpose for it was to demonstrate that in the dark day of the judges, the chosen line of David, and therefore the chosen line of the Messiah was protected by the sovereign hand of God. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path.